Russians are they, they suffer. They have this they have this capacity for suffering, but the suffering is a way of knowing that they they're alive. And the the utopian progressive rational systems that want to eliminate all suffering can do that, but at the expense of of, of feeling um, alive. And Welcome back to Mind Matters, everyone. Today, we are pleased to have joining us Gary Lockman. Gary is an author and lecturer on various topics, including pretty much the whole of esoterica and the and occult literature and counterculture. And his latest book, which we'll be discussing today, is The Return of Holy Russia, Apocalypt, Apocalyptic History, Mystical Awakening, and the Struggle for the Soul of the World. Here is the book. We've got it right there. And as a side note, maybe we can talk about this too. Gary is a founding member of the rock band Blondie. And he currently lives in London um, from where he is speaking today. So first of all, welcome to the show, Gary. It's a pleasure to meet you and to have you on. Oh, thank you very much. To start out with, um, I found your book actually. I found your book. I hadn't read any of your books before, Gary. I, I think I'd heard of a couple of them, but I never got around to reading any of them yet until I was just browsing around on Amazon and I found this one. It kind of um, piqued my curiosity. I was like, oh, what's that? And I clicked on it and I read some of the reviews and some of the blurbs and thought, well, okay, this looks really interesting because it's something that um, the topic is something that I'd been um, aware of to some degree for the past several years, ever since Russia really became big in the news. Um, I'd seen several several of the quotes you use in one of the opening chapters from people like Edgar Casey and about this 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 concept of of a future where something about Russia is important and spirituality is important and there might be some kind of like rebirth of some sort of of a new a new spirituality of or something in Russia or from Russia. So this idea was kind of in the back of my mind and I saw this and and got the book read it and first of all just i thought i think it's a great book it's it's also it's not only well i'd call it a spiritual history of russia um would, well, would you agree with that as a, as a way of character yeah, characterizing yeah, the book? Yeah, yeah more or less yeah but it's, so, yeah, yeah sure, sure okay so so you go through you go through pretty much all russian history and so for first of all for anyone who's not familiar with russian history like a lot like i'm canadian we didn't learn a lot of russian history i know my american um, co-hosts probably didn't learn a lot of American history, so it's a it's a, a good way to get an introduction into Russian history, and also from a perspective that's that's um, not as boring as let's say uh, some high school courses in history might be. It's got all kinds of esoterica and things like that in there, and so even just for that reason, I'd recommend reading the book. But it's in that thread that you weave throughout the narrative that um, that a lot of the interest for me is as well, and. To start out with, we want to get into several aspects of the book and several time periods, but to start out with, maybe could you comment a bit on those those figures that predicted something about Russia, what you think about that, and, and how that relates to, um, let's say, the Russian character. That might be a better place to start, actually, the, the Russian character. Like, what, who are, like, Russians? What do... What sets Russians apart from others? Why are they so interesting? <laughs> right. All right. Well, um, <clears throat> um, well, there is a chat. I mean, I, uh, in the introduction to the book, I do kind of um, uh, set the scene for this notion that there's something 
special or something new or some kind of um, uh, rejuvenating cultural impulse was thought to um, be coming out of Russia before the Bolshevik revolution. So in the early 20th century. Um, and I start the book with um, an account of Rudolf Steiner, um, the um, founder of anthroposophy and this great esoteric teacher of the early 20th century. Uh, he was quite popular in Russia. And um, in 1906, he gave a series of lectures at, uh, in the suburb of Paris during a big theosophical jamboree. He was the biggest sort of exponent of uh, theosophy or one of the heads of the Theosophical Society on the continent in, in German, German-speaking language. And in this series of lectures, um, much of his audience is made up of um, Russians who had left uh, Russia after the 1905 revolution. And they were part of this intelligentsia, this, this uh, generation that were known as the God Seekers. And it was during a time that was subsequently called the Silver Age. And it was a time of great interest in mysticism and spirituality and so on and so on. And Steiner had this sense that somehow Russia was um, going to um, somehow unite and harmonize these two antipodal you know, energies or forces that, that work in the world at the time and, and still are. Um, the West, the technological, scientific, rational West and the sort of mystic, intuitive, uh, spiritual East and somehow Russia was you know, a place um, geographically and also sort of psychologically and spiritually for a union of these two things. And that idea was a lot of Russians themselves at the time you know, felt something like this. There was some messianic sense of, of something that was expected of him on its way and different writers at the time. Dostoevsky, you know, uh, most famous one, just before the Silver Age in late 18, uh, 1880s was writing about this. But uh, this whole notion that there's a kind of peculiar um, spiritual character to the Russian people is something that I also talk about. And um, the German uh, writer, Hermann Hesse, the novelist, um, who was very popular in the 60s and 70s, so at least my generation. In 1919, he published um, a small book. Um, it was called A Glimpse into Chaos. And it was about uh, Dostoevsky. And it was about his novels, The Idiot and um, Brothers... Uh, Karamazov, and um, he, he talks about this character that he calls Russian man. And it's a peculiarly strange, um, contradictory kind of soul that's able to hold in itself all these sort of oppositions and polar opposites and contradictions and is turbulent and explosive and a kind of protein kind of chaos. And he saw this on its way. And um, he talks about, basically he talks about the, the sort of the Karamazov brothers as uh, exemplifying this. Um, um, and, and different characters in Dostoevsky's novels that talk about this. And it's this kind of, uh, this, this, this sort of in, indiscriminate yay saying, or what he calls this kind of frightening sanctity. Everything has become holy. And so even the, what we would consider from a Western or more straightforward, normal, you know, moral point of view as, as you know, reprehensible or morally repulsive, uh, this Russian soul that's able to say yes to everything would be able to embrace it. And in, in one sense, it kind of, by this time, cliched figured of this would be Rasputin, you know, and even his kind of tag as the holy devil um, kind of shows this, this kind of antinomian, you know, union of the opposites. So this is a kind of character, um, a kind of I, a, a sort of psychological profile that, that it, it is, runs throughout the book, along with others as well. I mean, there's mm -hmm. uh, this kind of, um, 
bovine docility of, of Oblomov, uh, the Oblomov character in Goncharov's novel, who like he takes 50 pages to get out of bed. <laughs> so there's this kind of, <laughs> this, this, this kind of lethargic, just heavy um, um, in, uh, kind of inanimateness Mm-hmm. of the Russian Russian psyche as well, which uh, periodically gives way to these eruptions of kind of chaotic uh, strangeness in, or, or, or kind of, uh, you know, vicious violence and all that. So there's all these sort of strange, stormy, turbulent um, psychic energies going on in the Russian soul. And that's why Russian history itself is this wonderful, just in terms of drama and, 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 you know, conflict and Shakespearean sort of tragedy and things of that sort, or sort of Game of Thrones mm-hmm. uh, kind of scenario, you have all this working out throughout its entire history. Yeah. There's something that, uh, that I've noticed with a lot of the short biographies that you include in your book, Gary, and that is that a lot of these figures, many of which I've never heard about before, are, uh, are fascinating in that they might begin as, Marxists or or proto Marxists, or uh, they might begin their kind of intellectual religious career or whatever career they were embarked on uh, in the church, and then they would vacillate. And th- this seems to be quite common. They would they would uh, go from one kind of ideology or worldview to another ten years later, and then back again. And, it, and it's as though they were embodying the very um, struggle of working out how the world worked with great intensity in their writings, in their associations with other contemporaries. And uh, it, it, it's just a, a fascinating strain of, of uh, discovery and of uh, trying to come at something like the, the truth of what is or how the world is really um, comprised. So I, I wonder if you might speak about this this kind of uh, struggle that so many of these figures you write about are are working out on a personal and even an impersonal level on the on the Russian stage of a daily life. Well, I think this is one of the things that set the Russians apart from the West, and uh, even I mean earlier than the, the Soviet period. Or in, in a way, the Soviet period kind of put an end uh, to, to this sort of volcanic um, kind of eruptive character. It, it put it put it down. It dampened it down quite a bit. Uh, but before that, I mean, the thing is that the they they well, the th- here's here's a story. I mean, one of the stories that um, Nikolai Berdyaev, who's a great um, Russian philosopher, and you talk about people who start out as a Marxist and they do that. Well, he's one of these. He was a Marxist, um, but then um, he became very critical of Marx and certainly very critical of the Bolsheviks. Um, he was a Christian, a very unorthodox Christian, and um, he was um, sort of kicked out of the church at one point. In a way, the revolution prevented um, the actual punishment that was he was supposed to be exiled or something. He was exiled anyway by Lenin, but not, not for religious reasons. Um, but then he became an existentialist, and he wrote these series of books in exile in Paris um, about um, freedom. He was known as a philosopher of freedom. But he tells this wonderful story about how um, uh, all these, um, you know, intellectuals and poets or whatever are hanging out in the cafe and they're arguing and the cafe, it's four in the morning and the cafe owner wants to close shop. And, um, they say, no, we can't, we can't go home. We haven't decided whether God exists or not. 
and and they they keep going. So they take these kind of questions that seem to us, you know, kind of naive or immature or jejun, as Woody Allen would say, um, uh, as um, you know, serious. Mm-hmm. And um, I mean, when you compare someone like say Tolst- people like Tolstoy and Dostoevsky, who e- e- even between the two of them, they're very different. But still, they're, they are fundamentally obsessed with these kind of existential questions about mm-hmm. meaning and purpose and all of that. And you look at, you know, Flaubert, you know, sort of contemporaries. I mean, um, you know, they're great artists, but they're not, he isn't really concerned with those sorts of things. Um, even if, you know, say, Emma Bavari and uh, Anna Karenina are dealing with the same kind of issue in their life and all that. And this is something that runs through and it goes, I mean, earliest on, I mean, one of the things I sort of, again, I'm, I'm not a Russian scholar, really. I don't. I've never been to Russia. I don't read. I don't read or speak Russian. I've read everything in translation. But I'm a. I'm a great fan of of Russian literature and all that. And the fun thing for doing this book was that I didn't know much about Russian history. Um, and some readers may say, "Well, I, I obviously I still don't." The book, is evidence, <laughs> the book is evidence of that. Uh, but um, but. Um, you know, it was fun for me to learn and to tell that story. And it is full of all these kind of these very extravagant, intense characters. But this goes back, I would say, to the roots of because you have, I mean, the old story is that um, the, the indigenous Slavic people invited these these Danes or these Vikings, Rurik, to come and basically be their police force. And instead of coming and invading us every now and then, why, why don't you stay here? You, you, you know, we're, we're, we're kind of chaotic. And this is the whole sort of the two, the two different sides. There's this chaotic kind of, we really can't get our act together on our own side of the Russian people. We need a strong authority to give some boundaries to our turbulent, you know, uh, chaotic energies. So why don't you, Rurik, and, and your Viking uh, clan come here and we'll take care of you very nicely and you can rule us and you can keep all the other Vikings away. And that, that mixture is supposed to be, you know, there from the beginning. You know, you have these kind of tensions, these opposites at, at play in, in the very beginning. And then there's just this intensity of, of um, I mean, uh, in the 17th century, in the 18th century, late 17th, uh, 18th century, when you have sort of the rise of Freemasonry. And this is like the really, this is the real 18th, 19th century is the real start for sign of Russian thought and thinking. I mean, it really doesn't get going until really the 19th century. But you have these, these elements um, in, in the sort of century before. And again, it's taking all these moral and religious questions absolutely seriously. I mean, it's, mm-hmm. you know, it, the, the apocalyptic history is the, um, you know, in, in, in the subtitle here. Um, it's from the publisher. But it is about the sense of taking the apocalypse seriously. And this mm-hmm. is one thing when the Russian people took on Greek Orthodox, this, the whole notion of the end times, you know, history was heading towards something. Mm-hmm. It's going to be this great tra- transfiguration. And they, they really believe that. And that's something that's, you know, there and it comes out in, in all of these tensions. Yeah. And it comes out in so many different ways in all of these periods of history, even in, you know, the run up to the to the Bolshevik revolution and, and communism. And I, I want to get into that. But first, I wanted to just I wanted to read um, a couple sentences from the Russian man chapter in the book, because and then I'll I'll, I'll I'll give you my image of the prototypical Russian um, from YouTube. So first of all, you, <laughs> you wrote, um, this, uh, this is in anticipation of the world to come. Um, Russians are often anxious to get there and see the intervening historical process as at best a nuisance, at worst a barrier. 
impeding the arrival of the last days. And so that goes to what you just said about the apocalypticism the returning in Russia. But the image I have in my mind is when the Chelyabinsk meteor exploded over um, Chelyabinsk um, several years ago, there is that video that became pretty viral on the internet of there's this one Russian driver because they've all got dash cams, right? So there's the, the, it's trained on this guy driving. He's driving, you know, he's going like this. And then there's this massive explosion in the sky, right? That caused tons of damage, several injuries from glass blowing out in all these buildings because it was a giant, um, like air, air burst in the sky from this meteor, meteorite. And this guy, this Russian driver is just going and the, and the, 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 the sky lit up brighter than the sun when this happened and you see him driving like this and he just puts down his, his dash to, to shield his eyes and keeps driving. Right? It's like, I'm not going to be nuisanced by this, uh, this meteorite exploding in the air and causing all this destruction. That's kind of the typical Russian in my mind. And so you, so I, I like that quote about, because there is this, there is this kind of dichotomy, this strange contradiction in, you know, for, for someone who's not Russian, at least, looking in at, at Russians. Um, I, I know quite a few Russians, and, uh, and they're great guys uh, and gals. But, the, but when you look at, you know, everyone forms a kind of image of other cultures, you know, a kind of stereotype or just, a, you know, a, um, a mold that, that a, lot of, a lot of people tend to fall in. And that that does seem to be, like you said in the in when, when you were quoting Herman Hesse's um, writing on it, and and others, there there does seem to be a Russian character, and there is this, um, there there are these great contradictions, like like and like Alan was saying, often in the same person, where it's a, a vacillation between ideas and this deep wrestling and grappling with these ultimate questions, and and that shows itself in the history where we have these these cycles. Um, when I was reading the book, I I, I myself had like had a a um an argument with myself in my mind about okay well if you look at any other country you can find all of the all of the variations in human nature and and you can find all of these all these extremes you know everywhere but but at the same time it seems like there's there is something like russia almost um like uh it's very specific it's it's very like honed in like there's it's almost epitomized or or idealized i can't think of the right word it's it's a when it happens in russia it's like bigger than life and Mm. when i when reading the your book it was like the history of russia is almost like the history of everything encapsulated in this one nation very large nation but it's it's all there so you have um at the beginning like right from the beginning like you said in the the legend we don't know how true it is of of rurik you know being invited in to to police the 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 tribes there um you have these warring like inter like basically warring tribes or warring clans and uh, a strong man that comes to to bring things right and to bring some unity and you have that happen at several points like there the introduction of of orthodox christianity was a, a big part of that and and you ha- and then right after that you had more of these wars against um rival brothers and and descendants yeah. of the of the ruling class and we just watched um, uh, a Western here, Fistful of Dollars, Clint Eastwood. And there's a great line in that, that uh, town can't have two bosses. Um, and it's that seemed to be <clears throat> a theme that can, comes up again and again, where you have where you have this things falling apart and this, this striving for unity. And that unity takes different forms. Um, 
in the in the thought in in practice and in the thought in the thinkers trying to to conceive of this unity um maybe could you speak about that like what are the, some of the different ways that that Ru russians have sought unity and found it good and bad well you say early on i mean um you have um the descendants of rurik um uh, in kiev and creating what later became this kind of uh, sort of kind of an authorian sort of age for the russians this kind of golden age of kievan rus uh where kiev is the center of it and um uh, you know you have different rulers at different times and it lasts for a couple centuries it isn't actually actually that long uh and then they you know they adopt um Vladimir the first they adopt um greek orthodox christianity um after um well this wonderful story of uh, uh, queen olga um who had already converted to christianity um going to constantinople i mean it was both her own trip to go there because she wanted to see it and 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 she also wanted to be rebaptized in the church and all that but it was also a, a, you know, a, a political mission uh as well uh to set up relationships with um you know the byzantine um, empire and all that but she was completely uh, overwhelmed by the beauty of constantinople and um it became this uh, she was transfixed by uh, hagia sophia which is in the news again now you know um originally built uh, uh of constantine back in the you know uh, beginning of the uh, byzantine empire and uh, the second rome and um then you know captured in 1453 turned into a mosque and then without a Turk turned into a museum now back into a mosque and all that. So strange how this place is once again back in the news. And then, but then she goes back and she wants to bring back uh, not only uh, the Christianity, but the beauty, this whole notion that beauty will save the world. And beauty in itself is one thing that is a kind of unifying idea uh, through the Russians. And one of the things that um, seems to be the case is uh, more than one Russian historian that, that, that I, uh, I read when I was doing the book, was that the Russians seem to take something from someone else and kind of give it a certain kind of twist and turn it into something that's theirs. It's, it's suddenly Russian. You know, it starts out somewhere else and then they do something to it and it becomes Russian, that kind of thing. And there's the old joke during the Soviet period where anything that ever happened in history, you know, the Russians had it first, you know, <laughs> which is kind of the opposite of what actually really, really happened. Uh, but, you know, you had the church, you know, trying to bring it all together and then um, you had the pagan gods. But then once, once Vladimir um, the first um, converted uh, and married into the, you know, the Roman, the royal family and all that, um, he went from town to town and place to place in, in Russia and uh, threw the old gods into the rivers and all that and established, uh, sometimes by, you know, force of arms, established the, the new church. Um, but then there, is, there does seem to be, yeah, it, 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 usually in terms of kind of the social and political structure, there, there's somebody who brings it all together. He has sons and he says to the sons, look, see what we, we have made. Uh, once I am gone, do not war among yourselves. You know, here is a fair share for all of you um, and so on and so on. And they all say, yes, we will do that. And as soon as he dead, the first thing they do is they start fighting. Um, so there seems to, I mean, you know, there, there seems to be something in, 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 a kind of short-sightedness in uh, not only in the Russians, obviously this happens other places as well, but there does seem to be a kind of short-sightedness and, and a kind of go for, you know, go for it first, uh, smash and grab kind of attitude. And then you 
every now and then you do get someone who's a bit more farsighted and recognizes the need to unify. And that was one reason why Vladimir uh, adopted the church because he wanted the, the Greek Orthodox, because he wanted something to bring everybody all together. Mm-hmm. And there's a story that he had sent um, some of his you know, people out to check out other religions and they checked out Islam and they checked out Judaism and they checked out Catholicism. And uh, you know, the only one that they really um, uh, liked and, and uh, was, uh, they had the same effect when they went to Constantinople and they said that we didn't know whether we were on earth or in heaven. Um, so there is this wonderful aesthetic kind of character and the, and the Russians take it very seriously. Mm-hmm. I mean, beauty for them, art for them isn't something, it's something that's salvific. Um, art, art should have a, you know, a salvational character to it and not just satisfying. Again, it's like the difference between someone like say Tolstoy or Flaubert or something mm-hmm. um, later on. Uh, but the, yeah, there does seem to be this kind of, you know, let's, let's bring it all together and then it kind of dissipates and then a stronger force comes, the Mongols came and um, ended um, Kievan Rus, and they were under the Mongol yoke for a while. And, um, and then you have the rise of Moscow after that, after a few centuries. And uh, yeah, we have these um, very powerful authoritarian paternal uh, figures. Um, most, the one that most people know is uh, Ivan the Terrible, mm-hmm. who basically, basically creates a theocracy. There's, uh, it's, it's as if all of Russia became a, a huge monastery um, uh, under his rule. And, um, you know, he has the first secret police, the Oprichniki and all that kind of thing. And, um, yeah. Yeah. And then I, that falls apart. That falls apart after his, after his death as well. And you have the time of troubles and again, mm-hmm. and again, it all, it all disseminates. Mm-hmm. That's, I wanted to talk a bit about Ivan, uh, good old Ivan. I was, I was in Moscow for a few days, uh, just over a year ago on, on a little vacation. And, um, went through Moscow and St. Petersburg. So I went through some of the big museums and I can't, I think it was in the Moscow, the Tetryakov, I think, I think is the name of the museum. I probably got it wrong. Um, where a lot of the old Russian masterpieces are like from, they've got some Andrei Rublev in there and all the way up to the present. Right. And so there, there are some of the famous portraits or paintings and, um, sculptures of, um, Ivan or Ivan, and there's the one of him seating uh, or sitting like in his throne, basically. And uh, that it's a uh, I didn't know I'd heard whenever there's someone in history who's universally either hated or loved. I'm always skeptical about, you know, what it might what might be the truth. So in this in this uh, sculpture, he looks like a pretty menacing guy. Like um, he, he, he looks dread, dreadful or dreaded um, like the translation probably should be. But yeah. but then reading your reading your book. Yeah, it, it, the, the, even in. Ivan the Terrible, there's this contradiction where um, arguably, it, it seems to me inarguable that he was a pretty nasty person. Like uh, like you said, it seems like it seems inescapable that he enjoyed watching people being tortured, for instance. And he did set up this secret police. But on the other hand, there he, he, he did seem perhaps to be genuinely spiritual or at least at least very good at um, at using that for his own purposes, um, was he the one that uh, had to leave a city at some point and walked, you know, to 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 this monastery, and the people followed him and were um, like all the all the faithful and and well, yes, 
So. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, he. he uh, well, I'm sorry. No, no, no. No, no go ahead. No, for sure. Uh, no, no. He had. Yeah, he. He, had, he was deeply religious, as many of, of the czars were. Um, they didn't seem. It's sort of like the mafia bosses who are really Catholic. You know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It, it doesn't seem to really. You know. Yeah. <laughs> Somehow they're able to hold these contradictions together. Yeah. Um, and so you know, similarly there, and but he was also um, uh, well read for someone of his time and literate, and and he uh, promoted education. And things of that sort, and um, but he seems to be um, an example of a of a personality type that I borrow from um, the British writer Colin Wilson. Who he he actually borrowed it originally from the American science fiction writer A. E. Van Vogt, um, mm. and it's a character called the Right Man yep. or the Violent Man. But it's he's most better known as the Right Man. And Van Vogt wrote mostly science fiction, but he did write one at least one non uh, non science fiction. Um, kind of a Cold War story. Um, it's called, uh, I think it's called The Violent Man. Uh, any case, it's someone who under no circumstances whatsoever can ever admit to being wrong and uh, who go into a rage if um, his wishes are you know, in any way impeded and um, uh, has to be right. And usually, you know, usually it's somebody, a, a kind of little Hitler who is, he, he's, he's fine and dandy at work and everybody thinks he's a real good chap and all that. And when he's home, he dominates his wife completely and, and, and all of that and his children, that kind of thing. But um, sadly, um, in many cases, not only in, in, in Russia, um, history has thrown up several of these characters into places where they can actually go to town, you know, mm-hmm. use their position and power to really, you know, um, dominate people in this way and he was he was one of them and the famous story where he kills his own son you know he had, he had this uh, kind of iron rod that he carried with him that was supposed to have been encrusted with the sort of different sort of semi-precious stones that had sort of occult virtues that he was supposedly aware of and and in some um fit of rage um he he struck his son and um even Boris Gudinov, who took over um, after Ivan after Ivan died um uh, uh, he, he sort of tried to stop the blows or something like that. And it was kind of thing, there's a famous painting, I can't remember the um, painter's name, where there's this scene after he, he's struck his son dead where he, he realizes you know, what he's done and all that. Um, but he seems to have been someone who just, he was un- unable to retain his rage if he was you know, any way contradicted or you know, impeded or anything like that. Um, but yeah, but he also, yeah, as you said, I mean, he, he, um, he wanted, he, what he wanted to do is gain more and more, con- centralize the control, centralized control. So he wanted to take more and more power away from the boyars who were the, the nobles. Um, um, he was sort of, you know, semi-independent and he was gradually taking more power away from them. And when they tried to resist him, this is when he said, okay, I'm leaving. And you know, this is somebody who had already killed thousands and thousands of people. And you know, the, uh, one of the mo- more gruesome stories is um, the rival city to Moscow at the time was Novgorod, which itself has a long kind of history of a more liberal, let's say, or Western kind of approach to things uh, rather than this authoritarian or, or it, it, w- it wasn't part of the czar kind of system. Um, but through some perceived slight um, that Novgorod had made him, he had the whole city walled up and then he you know, uh, massacred, I don't know, 40,000 or something like that. Um, so he, <laughs> and you know, and he actually, you know, as you said, he, he was sort of like, you know, Vlad the Impaler too. He, he liked mm-hmm. to see his 
victims tortured. So um, it's it's you know things are different then you know so yeah. <laughs> we can cut we can we can cut them a little slack you know people like bear bear baiting. I mean let's be serious you know the things that strike us we we sensitive post 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 people yeah. in the twenty first century look back on everyone before us as being horribly incredibly you know immoral and mm-hmm. guilty of every crime but so so things were different back then yep. but we I think I think we can say that. Uh, Yvonne went, you know, a little step too far and, and things like that. And he, yes, dreaded is what it's supposed to be. But as I say, you know, it's, yeah. it's terrible, you know, <laughs> whatever way you want to look at it. Um, but yeah, he's, and there's several figures like that, yeah. you know, and, 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 and not only um, in the secular field, but in the, you know, in the religious as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you talk about um, one of the interesting th- um, threads that I saw were these advisors, uh, sometimes rulers, sometimes advisors. Like uh, I'll never remember this guy's name, but I took a note so that I could say it. There was this guy um, who was advisor to, I believe, was it Nicholas the First? Pobeda Nostsev. Pobeda Nostsev. Pobeda Nostsev. Yeah, uh, he he was kind of this advisor, and he, along with another guy, um, De Maestra. Um, and, oh, yeah. jo- and Joseph then Demestre. Joseph yeah. Demestre and Nikon, they all had this um, this view of human nature that uh, human nature is so bad that we need a strong figure to keep people in line and to control their lives, basically. Basically, yeah. and that that reminded me. There's a, a book I don't know if you've heard of it called Political Ponderology by a, a Polish psychologist. It's um, he wrote it. Um, based on his experiences growing up in Poland, or not growing up, but living in Poland during the the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, and the the communist regime there, and he wrote this book as a um, a kind of psychological analysis of the nature of communism or totalitarianism. And one of the things he pointed out was that often in in these types of systems, they are guided by a philosophy that has what he characterizes just that statement that that is inherent in these philosophies that that um that support these systems and and he calls it he calls it a schizoid declaration because he he says that basically people with schizoid personality disorder tend to think like this and so i I found it interesting that that this pops up again and again and it popped up um first of all was it nicholas the first that who he advised? No, I, uh, I, no, I, I, no, I think it's it's been uh, later. I'm trying to think. Okay. So it was maybe one of the Alexanders. Alexander the, the Alexanders. maybe it was Alexander the third. Yeah, yeah, okay. he was later. Yeah, um, because he's actually um, Dostoevsky apparently uh, based at least some of his ideas about the Grand Inquisitor in the Brothers mm. Karamazov on Pobedonotsov. Right. And uh, yeah, they all have this very well. It's it's an extreme religious point of view. Human nature has fallen. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's the opposite of the progressive view, which is the Western view that, um, you know, man is malleable um, and uh, or John Locke, you know, the nothing in the mind that um, didn't get there through the senses. And so um, if you if you create the right environment, um, the right things get through into the mind and then you can, you know, make the, the perfect world or the better yep. world. And there's a variety of different utopias like that, you know, mm-hmm. from B.F. Skinner, Beyond Freedom and Dignity, you know, to Lenin. Lenin tried to do that. Um, and it's the opposite of this notion that, no, human, humanity has a nature and um, a man is a beast 
and it needs to be you know driven and you can get something good out of humanity if you have a strong authority over it and um this was something that this again that's a whole pull in the western kind of thing itself and, and uh, nikon you mentioned he but he was um he, he, he was a, a religious figure mm-hmm. um and um he, he was the advisor to uh, alexis um uh and um and this was this was during the period of the great the great schism uh, 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 the rascal, uh, when um, he wanted to introduce all of these, um, well, this kind of strict Greek um, practices in, 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 into uh, the Russian practice in the church rather than the Russian church's own. So it seems like the simple things, whether you, whether you sort of make the kind of sign of the cross at three fingers or two or, or, or all this kind of thing, but it, it was sort of the equivalent of um, uh, uh, Protestantism and and, and uh, Catholicism where, you know, this sort of modernizing of it. And he wanted to do that, but at, for, for a time he was running the country. I mean, he, he was in control. And this was another time when um, the, the secular, well, there wasn't any difference between the religious and the secular world. And in many ways, really, for much, much of Russian history, uh, that was the case. There wasn't mm-hmm. the difference. Total, totally different than so America, or where you have you know separation of church and state, or you're supposed to at least in the in in, uh, in the ground rules for it, that uh, that was never the case in Russia until you know until the Soviet kind of time, or you know during Peter the Great and all that. He, he you know the Westernizers, they they um, the secular powers increasingly you know tried to gain greater control, uh, but Nikon was a time when um, he ran the the country. And um, and it took uh, quite a bit of um, you know uh, kind of will on the part of Alexis uh, the Bazaar to sort of face him down and and and, and all that. And um, who's the other one you met? Uh, oh, Demestre. Demestre. He's yeah. one of these. Uh, um, he was uh, an advisor to Alexander the First. And um, he's um, uh, Isaiah Berlin has written a um, brilliant um, sort of um, piece on him. He's one of these radical far-right, um, ultra-conservative thinkers that uh, came up after the sort of French Revolution or around that time. And um, uh, he basically said, you know, uh, the, uh, the hangman's noose is, is sort of the sign of civilization. So this whole, this really notion that man is a beast and, and, and really needs to be um, brought under control. And many of these people start out as sort of more liberal kind of thinkers and then they're, um, they're disabused of that illusion you know, human nature shows mm-hmm. through and then they realize this is the only thing. Yeah. And again, th- this all feeds into uh, Dostoevsky's Grand Inquisitor in, in the Brothers Karamazov. Mm-hmm. Um, where the, the, the whole, uh, he tells the story, or uh, Ivan tells the story of Jesus coming back during the Inquisition and, um, you know, he's, he's arrested and, and the Grand Inquisitor um, um, you know, sort of, interrogates him and all that and yep. the upshot is that why, why did you come no man doesn't want the freedom that you offer you know people want that burden taken off them they want to be told what to do um and you sh- you should you should thank us that we've taken on this horrible job of of dealing with messy humanity and and you know trying to bring in some order and peace and why do you want to come and and you know um stir things up again and all that mm-hmm. and um this was this this was a question Dostoevsky himself you know if you know his novels you know he deals say the crime and punishment where Raskolnikov and again Raskol is goes back to the schism so he's a heretic Raskolnikov um 
he's one of these, well, it's before Nietzsche. So, uh, but he, again, he's one of these new men, these new rationalists who says there's no good and evil. And um, yeah, there's, no more, more, there's no moral reason why I shouldn't murder that pawnbroker and take her money. I'm, I'm a you know, higher type intellectual and all that, and I need it and all that. And so he thinks he can do that. Um, so Dostoevsky, you know, charts out this actual life. Okay, well, let's see what happens. Let's take that formula. There is no God anymore. There isn't. We're just cogs in the wheel of some, you know, great machine. Let's see what happens when somebody takes that to its logical conclusion. And as we know, it was Kolnikov commits the murder, but he can't, can't get away with it in the sense that his own guilt, much like Poe in, you know, the telltale heart, you know, there's mm -hmm. a lot of Poe in, in Dostoevsky. Mm. So, uh, Gary, you... You discuss um, the kind of rumblings of revolution during the period of uh, Tsar Nicholas II and the, um, the 1905 revolution, which was uh, like another kind of foreshadowing and precursor of um, what would come later with uh, Lenin and Trotsky. And um, concurrent to the 1905 revolution, there is also this, uh, there are also these these movements that are quite open-minded and, and moving into these groups that uh, your book describes as symbolists or cosmists, all these various um, angles of, of religious and intellectual curiosity. And there's also a, a kind of darker strain, an occult strain, um, exemplified by guys like Constantine Baumont, who authored a book called Evil Spell, a book of exorcisms. And at one point, you, you write in your book that um, the suggestion that dark forces may have been responsible for the 1905 revolution, which reminded me a little bit of, and in fact, your, your whole book reminded me a little bit of Peter Lavenda's Unholy Alliance, which is the occult strain and connections that, that led up to the fruition of Nazi Germany and how... And how there was this strong interest in occult and mediumship and spiritualism um, that that played a very big part in the Reich. Uh, so I guess my question is, uh, do you think that there was a energy uh, or an opening that was created by this intense interest in things occult? Uh, in that part of the century that may have had some influence in one way or another in opening up the the kind of chaos that would ensue with with the the revolution well i would say it's possible um i i, I can't think of a reason why i would categorically say it, it wasn't possible um i kind of hint hint at the possibility of it you know rather than go into like saying oh well you know because but you know people at the time i mean steiner um rudolf steiner who was very um very very influential um in russia at this time and in fact in the early days of the revolution there were a lot of anthroposophical fellow travelers uh, as it were with the bolsheviks and for a time they were working with them just like much of the early um sort of Futurist artists um, like Mayevich and, and the poets like Mayakovsky and all that um, mm. and so on. But um, yeah, I mean, you know, there's this whole theme that there are, as we said, uh, what's happening in human history is kind of, uh, that, that's, that, that's the phenomenon, the noumena 
uh, that's the effect that causes something on on uh, on another plane in some way. And um, as I say, I mean, I'm you know, I'm I'm open to the idea. I don't explore it in in particular. But that's something that I touch on in more recent times with the the book that I did before Return of Holy Russia, Dark Star Rising, Magic and Power in the Age of Trump, which is about this kind of rise of occult politics in contemporary uh, times. And kind of the the Russia book kind of came out of that because I have a chapter on what was happening in Russia there. And uh, there's certainly people involved in the political world these days on the sort of far right extreme and also on the left. Um, there's whole there's the witches against Trump in the States and uh, other kinds of kind of magic for the resistance going on. Um, but um, there certainly did seem to be um, a, a resurgence of a kind of, you know, occult politics on, on the far right. And uh, I mean, you know, in occult philosophy, when there's a lot of attention to this kind of stuff, you do create, how should we say, the idea is that you create an atmosphere in which something can take place. And that's, I don't say that in the Russia book, but I do say it in the book on Trump, um, because there's all the stuff about people using the internet to like help Trump get elected and, and all of that. And Pepe the Frog meme, I don't know how much you're, you're aware of that. Pepe, Pepe became, he went from being an innocuous, you know, amphibian slacker uh, to becoming this, 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 this kind of charged talisman of, of evil power and, 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 and all that kind of thing. And supposedly saturating the net with images of Pepe, you know, hanging out with Trump or being Trump and all that. Somehow um, that, that, that um, bled into the real world and, and made it happen. But this is something that you can find, you know, throughout. Um, Julius Evelo, who's this um, uh, interesting uh, Italian esoteric thinker from the 20th century who also had very, very um, uh, far right uh, political sensibilities. And he tried to ingratiate himself with Mussolini and then national, the national socialists and all that. But um, in the 1920s, he was doing something similar um, to what the, you know, the people who were supposed to have helped Trump were doing. He was using his magic spells to help well, he, what he wanted to do was infuse Mussolini's fascists with more of the ancient Roman spirit. I don't know how successful he was um, mm. at that. Like you, have to, you have to have asked the Ethiopians, I guess. But um, yeah, I mean, this, this, stuff, this stuff goes on and I, I have an open mind about it. I mean, if you ask me, is it possible? I would say yes. Did it happen then? Well, I don't know. Sure. Um, you know, um, but it certainly would have been a place where something would happen. And at the time you're talking about with Balmont and all that and the symbolists, I mean, there was an occult revival going on in London and Paris and other places, but it was not, it was, it was febrile in, in St. Petersburg. It was feverish. There was, there was a hallucinatory character to it. And if you know, Andrzej Bielli's novel, Petersburg, um, Bielli um, was a contemporary of Balmont. He was another one of these symbolist poets, you know, fantastic uh, visionary, uh, precise, kind of language and but he he was a student of Steiner's and um, this novel which is about the 1905 uh, it was around the same time 1905 revolution and it's about the assassination of this um, you know senator um, but it's all it takes place against this backdrop of of uh, St. Petersburg that's informed with all of this anthroposophical and theosophical ideas about auras and you know different levels of being and things like that but there was this kind of feverish character to what was going on at the time and the, you know, you, you know, the black you know the book of spells is black there were black magic clubs there were suicide clubs and i ask in the book you know how did they keep up their membership <laughs> um and um there, there was all you know uh, the devil you know, satan was very very popular 
uh, Chia Palin, who's one of the great sort of singers at the, at the, at the time, uh, he was famous for doing Bruno's Faust, Faust and all of this. So um, there was a real kind of, um, you know, dark kind of magic to it. At the same time, there was a deep spirituality in, in um, people like the philosopher Vladimir Soloviev or Nikolai Berdyaev or P.D. Uspensky, mm -hmm. who's known mostly for being, um, you know, the most eloquent exponent of um, Gurdjieff's system. Um, before that, he, he was a familiar figure on, on the, the St. Petersburg and Moscow um, kind of art, cultural and esoteric scene. Um, he was a theosophist, but he was well known, you know, writing for different journals and newspapers. And he was a, a familiar figure at a place called the Stray Dog Cafe, um, which had you know, people like Anna Akhmatova and um, Vieli and Mayakovsky and uh, many others sort of hanging out at this time. So it was this wonderful blend and it had, had a real, so it was, it was like, it was a hothouse kind of character to it. It was like superheated and um, everybody expected something to happen, you know, whether it was going to be the Atlantis or, you know, the Messiah. And that's why in many ways, Lenin just sort of saw the fuse was there mm -hmm. and uh, he, he, he put the match to it, you know, basically. Mm -hmm. That seems like another period of time, um, a condensed period of time where there, there are these explosions of extremes. So you had, like you said, there was this dark aspect, but there was this really you know, light aspect as well where you had, and it just seems all just mixed together and broiling up. And it seems that that, that energy was, whatever that energy was, um, Lenin man was pretty expert at exploiting it and, um, and then completely breaking down the existing social order. Which uh, and it was a social order that that definitely had problems, but yeah, I, I um, but then you have a guy like Lenin that just tears everything down, and then systematically in in the years of when communism take, took over, um, eliminating all of these occult groups. Um, you had first of all, you start out like you show in the book. You have some um, interest, like in the in the Cheka or the 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 secret police areas interest in these various maybe anthroposophy or th theosophy and you have some collaborations going on between some controversial figures and people in the system and then eventually anthroposophy gets banned um you know uh, pretty much any kind of occult thing gets banned and what you but you what you do have is the kind of that's when you move into the esp era of of psychic spies and and remote viewing and all of that kind of stuff um um what did i Oh, I, f I wanted to ask one more thing about the Silver Age guys. Maybe it was about yeah, it was about Uspensky. Um, mm. That um, because Uspensky managed to to leave, um, Gurdjieff got out of uh, got out of Russia. Um, Uspensky followed him later, and managed to you know trek his way out. And eventually, eventually they they made their way to Europe. But a lot of a lot of the other philosophers, the like even the some of the Silver Age philosophers, they they had a special boat out. Right. Um, maybe you maybe you could uh, just just speak yeah. a little bit about the the way that a lot of these guys got uh, shipped out of Russia. Yeah. Well, I, m I mentioned Berdyaev um, uh, earlier, and uh, he and many many other um, philosophers, literary critics, historians, poets, artists, um, you know, academics, and so on, 
who uh, were opposed to the Bolsheviks, but um, you know they they were they were sort of fellow travelers until Lenin basically took over. They you know they they knew things had to change. They were against the Tsar and the old system, but they, they weren't sold on 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 Marx completely, and then certainly not on Lenin's. Um, version of it. But when he came to power, um, he knew he had to get rid of them, but he didn't want to just eliminate them because the press would have been too bad. So um, what he did was that he got two, two boats and, and uh, they were known as the philosophy steamers. Uh, there's a wonderful book um, by Leslie Chamberlain about it. And it tells the story of all these different intellectuals being put on these boats and sent, um, you know, out in, into the Baltic and then uh, wound up in Germany. And then they're all disseminated in different places. Some went to some state in Germany, some went to Czechoslovakia, some went to Paris. Um, Bedayev was in Berlin first, then he, then he settled in Paris and lived there until he died in the late 40s. And um, yeah, it just was, it was this kind of um, exodus or, or diaspora of these, you know, Russian intellectuals who um, were, you know, uh, basically just told this town, ain't, like you said, you know, you, the town can't have two bosses. Yeah. So this, this town ain't big enough for, for the 57 of us. <laughs> so, you know, you guys have to go. And um, some of them did okay. Some of them didn't. And um, some of them, um, there was one particular group um, known as the Eurasianists. And they're very interesting because in recent years, they've come back into the news, as it were. Um, they were they were these sort of, I don't want to call it, anthropo anthropological, uh, ethnographic kind of thinkers who, they thought the Russian, the Bolshevik revolution wouldn't last. It, it would collapse fairly soon. Um, they didn't. They weren't like the white Russians wanting to go back to the Tsar and all that, but they they knew that they wanted to go back to Russia once the Bolshevik thing collapsed and to have a new idea, a new identity for what Russia was. And this was this notion of Eurasia, and it was the idea that Russia wasn't a separate country; it was actually this whole new civilization um, that had its own its whole history, its own culture, its own sense of values, its own sense of religion, and so on and so on. It, it wasn't a backward cousin of the West and it wasn't trying to keep up with the West, which was, you know, part of Russia's story ever since Peter the Great, you know, he, he tried to basically force Russia to become modern, uh, you know, the 18th century at least, and, and become Western. There's this whole struggle, you know, where there's this resistance that the Slavophiles um, would typify that in the 19th century. But the Eurasianists wanted to come back with this whole notion of, of this kind of whole ethnic group, a language group, that everything was completely different. It, it, was, it wasn't European in any kind of way. And it wasn't Asian in, in that way. It was this combination of, of the two. Mm -hmm. And um, it, well, it turns out the revolution lasted longer than, 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 than they thought. And so uh, many of the original group you know, died out eventually. But their ideas were picked up recently by, um, well, one, well, Putin, you can see in many of his uh, speeches and interviews, he talks about Eurasia and a kind of Eurasian Federation, like the, like the EU, Eurasian Union and mm -hmm. things of that sort. And then uh, 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 one of these strange, contradictory antinomian characters, um, this fellow Alexander Dugan, who's contemporary, um, he too, you know, had this, I, I talk about the Eurasian meme, he was promoting this whole idea. And, um, uh, there's, there's reason to believe that some of his ideas about this Eurasian super civilization that's coming up in the 21st century inform some of Putin's decisions in Ukraine and Crimea and all that. Well, and Putin also um, 
you, you write in the book that one of the motivations for the book was was that Putin had given a speech, I think, in like 2015, and he'd, he'd basically given a reading list to all the Russian governors, which included three of these Silver Age um, philosophers, Solovyov, um, or Solovyov, um, Berdyaev, and Ivan Ilyin. And, and so you'd known, you'd known some of these guys, you'd read them, so, so that kind of was an, an inspiration to, to take a deeper look in what actually was going on yeah. here. Um, uh, I thought that, w- that was interesting because you point out that, that, uh, that well, well, no, I, w- I won't get into, into those guys. Um, unless, you want to, unless you want to speak on that a little bit, I've got no, a question. No, whatever, no, no, okay. no whatever, go, no, go on. I want you to tell us a little bit about the, the Russian cosmists, um, particularly um, Fedorov and then following him, Tsiolkovsky, some of their ideas and, the, and how, how it's kind of interesting that they were the foundation of basically the Russian space program. Because I, I didn't know any of this stuff when I read this. Uh, oh yeah, well it, yeah, it's one of these one of these very very strange things. When you <laughs> you said earlier something about you know whoever, anything that happens in Russia is like stranger and weirder or bigger yeah. and something like that. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, I mean this is one case in which th- this is true. And uh, the cosmist school um, sort of gives it away with that name. And um, Nikolai Fedorov, um, he's sort of considered the founding father of cosmism, although that term wasn't used during during his 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 lifetime, but he was someone late nineteenth century, um, and he influenced Dostoevsky. Um, he influenced Tolstoy, um, uh, Vladimir Soloviev, uh, and he um, had long debates about things. And he had this one sort of idée fix, or this one kind of. Um, I mentioned Isaiah Berlin earlier, and he, he tells the story of the hedgehog and the fox. And the, the fox knows lots of little things, many, many, many little things. And the hedgehog knows one big thing. And the one big thing that uh, Fedorov knew was what he called the common task. And the common task was to revive the dead. And he had no idea how he would do this, but he believed that once people recognize that, yes, this would be, this, this is something that we have to do. We, we, it became a moral imperative. Once we recognize the moral imperative of having to revive the dead, and once we recognize that everyone had to put their shoulder to this particular wheel to, to join together in the common task to do this, um, we would find a way to do it. We would unite the entire planet um, in this one you know, brotherhood of man. And uh, this was, I mean, it sounds mad, but this was something that he uh, debated. Soloviev, I mean, the whole Christian notion of resurrection is very, they they didn't give lip service to this, the Russians. Mm -hmm. They really believed in this sort of thing. Uh, We today, you know, we just, what are are they talking about? You know, this is one of the craziest, crazier sides of Christianity that most, you know, uh, except, you know, for the, uh, you know, the Christian fundamentalists, um, take seriously. Most Christians don't really even think about this notion, but the, the whole idea was like, yes, really you know, <laughs> flesh and blood and bone is going to come back and all that and some way. So Salaviyev Salav, thought this was going to be a spiritual kind of resurrection, and some kind of trans, transformed body, you know, some angelic body. And the said, no, it's, uh, no, no, we're actually going to bring back the dead. And once, the fir- once, the fir- once it happens the first time, that, that's going to be the snowball effect. And how, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm just giving you the, the shortest kind of story of him. He was an incredible, he's one of these incredible Russian figures um, um, who uh, was a saintly kind of, you know, holy man who, you know, he, he wasn't part of the church, although he was deeply religious. 
Um, but he, he worked for many, many years in uh, a library, his famous uh, library in, in uh, St. Petersburg that it was moved. And he used to sleep in the library and he slept, he didn't have a bed, he slept on a kind of chest and he had a book as a pillow and he gave away all the money he had. Uh, his great fear was to be found dead in the street with some coins in his pocket. He, did, he never wanted to have any money on him. He gave it away. He gave away all his clothes. I mean, there's famous stories of him freezing in the winter because he, he gave away the one frock coat that he had. So he's one of these, you know, ascetic kind of remarkable holy figures that Russia produced. He's kind of holy fools. But he was also someone who knew every book in the library, what was in every book, where you could find it, uh, where you could find something like it. He was kind of walking Wikipedia or, you know, uh, a, a computer, you know, these days. He just knew everything. And, um, but he had this incredible idea about reviving the dead. And how this led to the space program is that he said, well, once we learn how to revive the dead, then we're gonna to have to collect all of the dust, you know, from the previous dead, from previous generations, right? And not, not all of that is on the, this planet. Some of it's out in space. So we're gonna to have to figure out a way to go out into space to track down the dust of the ancient dead. This sounds like Philip Pullman or something, the dust <laughs> and, and all that. And, uh, but not only are we going to have to go out into space to track down the dust, because once we revive all the dead, where are we going to put them? The earth isn't big enough to have all the dead come back again and live here. So we're gonna to have to find habitable planets with which to house the dead. And how this got on to the actual space program is when Konstantin Tsiolkovsky was a, a, a young boy, um, he was one of these people who used to sit literally at, at, at um, Fedorov's feet um, in the Rumiantsev Library and um, listen to him talk about all these kinds of things. And um, where um, Fedorov didn't know how to do these things, but he knew they had to be done. This is the thing. He, he had this kind of moral drive. He was just kind of, it was like the, the motivation to do it rather than how we will do it. But Tsiolkovsky was actually the one who worked out the rocket science, not to revive the dead, but to get out into space in order to collect the dust and all that. So he actually worked out the actual science how to do this. And um, he developed his own strange ideas about the, the, the cosmos. And it was like after him that the, it sort of became known as the cosmos kind of school because they thought, this again, this is something that seems to be typical or, or at least characteristic of the Russian Kind of way of looking at things is they don't they don't think about the individual. There's a difference between there's Western me and the R Russian we, and it's about it's about the brotherhood. It's about the 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 mass. It's about you know everyone. It's not about you 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 fretting little ego. You know no. It's about you part of this you know larger body of humanity, and that itself is part of the larger body of the cosmos, and. Um, uh, somebody else who's part of the school is a fellow named Vladimir Vernatsky, um, who's a great Russian scientist. He's not that well known in, in the West, but he's, he, he worked out the whole kind of geoscience and how um, living things affect the actual planet, you know, how oxygen in the air comes from, you know, the uh, plants and variety of different things. And he basically sees humanity as equivalent to forests, you know, or herds of animals in some way. And um, we're more or less kind of influenced by cosmic radiations coming, you know, cosmic rays, a variety of different kinds of things. And this was another idea that Tsiolkovsky had and, and various other kind of um, cosmists, 
kind of thinkers um, up, up into a more recent um, character named Lev Gumilev, um, who um, spent many, many years in the Gulag and um, was the um, son of Akhmatova and, and um, uh, his father, uh, 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 the, the poet Gumilev, who was shot by the Cheka in the early days of, of the revolution. But he too developed this whole notion about how ethnoi, like large ethnic bodies are influenced by cosmic radiations and are kind of, um, you know, we think we have free will, we think we make armed decisions for ourselves, but actually, you know, we're, we're pushed and pulled by, you know, forces out in the cosmos and all that. But all these kind of ideas, it's like, I mean, the West doesn't really think like that. We think that's kind of science fiction and weird comic book stuff, but that actually informed much of the Russian space program mm-hmm. and got it got literally got it off the ground mm-hmm. and uh, and got some of those cosmists on uh, like coins and, and and money and they're recognized as you know Russian heroes and and part of the oh, the legacy yeah. which is which is so interesting that uh, Fedorov and Tsiolkovsky are just just two of this example of when of so many of these highly original thinkers that that um, it's almost like just like Russia exemplifies or 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 um, um, whittles down everything into this extreme form, you have this almost shotgun approach to ideas where there's just all of these ideas that are just thrown out there, and even in one particular philosopher where you'll see something that just seems like totally mad, but next to it is something that seems totally um, almost um, revelatory some 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 nugget of truth and that's what i saw in in fedorov with his idea because um it's it is almost like a materialist version of um of the resurrection you know of the of the more orthodox christian view of what's going on and it just this it seems that 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 was almost a product of that time with where you had these currents of materialism and and spirituality and it was almost this and he himself was like you said a very spiritual person himself but the this idea of the resurrection being this literal um you know you're, you're going to be your dust is the dust that you were where is actually going to be used to recompose your body um is almost uh, just a a very western influenced materialist interpretation that is embedded within his wider spirituality which just seems so strange and so so interesting at the same time that and then that that would that inspires um, this, you know, one of his students to come up with these equations. It is, it's a story that you can only hear about Russians, right? It would make a great movie. I think, mm. I think someone should, well, the political climate isn't really right for having a, an interesting movie made about, uh, about old Russians, but um, it, it would make a, a, a good, a good thing like that. Well, I, I, I was, I mean, I was going to say, I think, you know, our Western ideas about transhumanism and all that kind of stuff, uh, is very yeah. similar along that. And I, I'm sure some of the transhumanist thinkers are really hip to that and, um, you know, bring that in. I mean, I think transhumanism is a great idea, but I think the problem is we're not even human yet. So um, <laughs> I, think, I, think we're st- I think we're still working on that. And I actually have an idea, I have an idea for a book about transhumanism. It's mm-hmm. called Transhuman, All Too Transhuman, um, as uh, Nietzsche said some years ago. <laughs> yes. but, uh, but, you know, it, it, it is a kind of scientific mysticism or it yeah. is something like, um, what is it? Uh, Oh, who's the guy Kurzweil or something? Is anyone yeah. about saying you know Ray sending Kurzweil. robots out out into space or Tipler and and all that kind of thing and see, seeding seeding the universe with um, you know um, humanity sentient kind of you know 
Mm-hmm. Well, I, I guess I guess our sentience will be in computers or something like that doing that. But it's a similar kind of idea. There's this great kind of grand scale, kind of hugely heroic kind of scale of things. And um, yeah, they think big. I mean, the Russians think they're not really miniaturists. There's a, there's a whole like a, a real big kind of thing. And you say the uh, shotgun method. It is, you know, it's in um, you know, it's the kind of thing where it's it as we say it, it's bound to be wrong in many places. But you, what when it's right, it's probably right in a really interesting way. Yeah, uh, that might may give you know birth to to some other things um, coming out. And all this stuff is is revived now. And that's the thing. The Federal yeah. was in the uh, I think he died in 1900 or something around that time. Um, Solkowski was, you know, not long after that. And um, but it's all since the collapse of the Soviet Union, uh, it's all been revived, and it's got the imprimatur of of Putin too, who, who wants to revive. Um, uh, I mean, this is this is how I got doing the book. Was that yeah, Putin had Berdyaev and Solovyev. Uh, and Ilyin, who's a different kind of thinker, but he's around the same time, the Silver Age, at the, on a reading list that he gave to his regional governors. And he's, he's talked about these people in his, his uh, speeches. And all of the figures from that time are, are undergoing, uh, experiencing a great revival. And the Cosmos School is, you know, is going and there's museums going and research programs and um, all, all this kind of thing. And uh, I mean, we we don't know any of these people. You know, we might you might be a you know um, documentary about them on PBS or something, but we we don't we don't know about them. But they're you know they're the equivalent of our great scientists over here. And there's always been strange stuff. I mean, the whole Lysenko and the whole weird kind of thing that was going on during the the Soviet period, where um, you know they're 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 Lamarckians and the Western Darwinians, and it's I mean that that was too. There's a kind of political kind of it's Russian science, you know. It's a kind of different kind of thing too. But um, I mean, one of the points I try to make in the book is that it, it, certainly by the time of the Silver Age, or at least the 19th century, um, when Russian philosophy gets going, Soloviev is considered the first Russian philosopher, but there was think thinkers before then, um, but. You know, the, the the thought appeared in fiction in, in Tolstoy and Dostoevsky and things like that. But it was all this kind of you know compensation for what the West had lost, which is the soul. The West had given itself away to utilitarianism and pragmatism and you know the greatest good of the greatest number and everything being quantified and so on. And the qualitative inner you know spiritual kind of dimension of reality had been jettisoned and considered, um, you know, this is just, this is a superstitious rubbish that we have to get mm-hmm. rid of. And this is why when Dostoevsky and Tolstoy, came, you know, erupted, it was just like, oh, it was overpowering because they were so intensely aware of the need for this. And so um, there's always that element, you know, and you have to remember, you know, the Soviet stuff, that was an implant. That was a Western implant. Mm-hmm. You know, Marx was Western, you know, he, yep. he um, you could have, if, if, I mean, you know, what could, what might have happened there had not Lenin gained control could have been something very different. Um, well, we'll never know, but it could have, it could have been something very different. One of the things that you so well describe is Lenin's uh, philosophy to kind of crush the inner life. There is no inner life. There is no uh, religious being separate from the state or his idea of of communism and his version of egalitarianism and it and how it kind of effectively crushed the soul of 
of Russia for 70 years. So it, it's, it's fascinating the way that uh, you describe, Gary, that all of these uh, great thinkers coming back into awareness in Russia over the past 20 or so years, hmm. and, and there being, I guess, would you say something of a, a renaissance in, in thought, in, um, hmm. in values? I would, I, I would think, and I would think it's something that um, they should do. I, and uh, again, this is one of the things, because I read this article about Putin, you know, um, giving these uh, philosophers on the reading list. Um, David Brooks in the New York Times was basically saying, oh, you know, um, Putin's telling his regional governors to read these messianic um, Russian exceptionalist is the word term we use now these days, um, thinkers who, you know, see Russia as having this, you know, this singular great um, apocalyptic role to play in, in history and so on and so on. And yes, to some extent that's true, but you have to understand what they mean when they say that. But he, he only saw it in this kind of jingoistic um, go Russia, you know, kind of view, which isn't really what, I mean, it may be what Putin's doing with them. And uh, yeah, he's a politician. And I, I, I'm not saying Putin is any great spiritual character, although I do think he takes it seriously to some extent, again, like the mafia boss who goes to church and all that. He takes it seriously, but he also has, you know, has his has job to do. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, I thought David Brooks' response and some of the other Western critics' response was very narrow-minded and simplistic and char characterizing these philosophers who are deep philosophers. And what they had to say was something that they believed the West needed to hear back then when they were saying it. What I try to say in the book is now 100 years later, I think we still need to hear it, whether it's Putin reminding us that they, they're, they've written this stuff or not. Mm -hmm. um, and again, why, why couldn't there be a kind of resurgence? I mean, there is, there certainly is on a po popular level. I mean, I, I just kind of give it a, a, a brief kind of overview of a variety of different resurgence of religious values and spiritual values. And some things seem kitsch and kind of, you know, overwrought and overblown. So other things seem kind of serious and important. And, um, but there's a long, um, I mean, one of the uh, things I talk about in the book is how in the late 80s and, and uh, 90s, uh, or, or late 80s actually, um, the Esalen Institute in California, which is um, one of the first kind of alternative kind of communities and spiritual kind of retreats to start up in the 60s. They had this whole program of, of kind of cultural exchange that had nothing to do with the governments of either country with, with, um, between the US and, and Russia. And they went and visited there and people from Russia visited there. And they said, when we were in Russia, we met so many people. We, 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 met, we met the kind of people that go out of their way to come to us at Esalen, almost everywhere in Russia. Hmm. So, you know, all, people into yoga and meditation and ESP and variety of different spirituality, which, you know, they have to book in advance to come stay with us for a while. We met them everywhere there. And you said, there's a whole well, the, the, the cliche is scratch a Russian and you'll find a mystic. And there's a whole kind of undercurrent of that, which I guess, you know, maybe it's a cliche for the Russians. I'm sure there's many Westernized kind of Russians that, oh no, this is a horrible cliche about it. It's just like, you know, Indians must feel it's a horrible cliche yeah. about the mystic, mystic East all the time. But it seems to be true to some extent. Um, and um, more so than in the West, which is always marginalized, that kind of stuff. You know, we, we still have this kind of woo-woo X-file kind of, character mm -hmm. about it but you mentioned yeah. you know about the pursuit of the parapsychology you know during the soviet period and they did you know 
uh, early on, there's the fascinating story of a fellow named Gleb Baki and uh, Alexander Bachenko, um, who were both involved in the, you know, the, the, the Cheka. Um, and they, uh, long story short, they, they wound up trying to get funding to go to Tibet to um, bring back the secrets of kind of meditation so that they could transmit the mes message of the revolution, you know, through mental powers. Um, and they were real serious about it and also bring back the super science that they believed the yogis had there, you know, kind of some cosmic power in some way that they could actually use. So and they didn't actually wind up going, but there were, there were many expeditions to Tibet and places like that. And there was a lot of, I mean, this is, there's a long story about this and it came out in the seventies psychic discoveries behind the iron curtain and, and so on and still goes on today. So, I mean, that stuff was going on in the West, but it, it, it's the kind of thing they have to kind of apologize for in some way and kind of mumble about, you know, whereas somehow the Russians say just, hey, we did this. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it was very interesting. This happened. And the, the West always have to kind of, I mean, I don't know. I, I, again, I haven't been following up, but I see on Twitter, there's all this kind of UFO disclosure mm -hmm. stuff that's going on now. I don't know yep. if you've been following that. There's supposed to be some yeah. big... Um, yeah, there's some things going on. Announcement of something. So, wow. Well, that, it's... There, there's a that, that's funny because that's bringing out a another difference between um, between Russia and the United States, which it's kind of contradict con, it kind of contradicts the what you've been saying um, ha, is true in other cases. So in in other cases, you have this kind of scratch a Russian find a mystic, and you find the reception to all this and just an an openness about this history. And yet, um, I was speaking to some Russian friends of mine who say that in Russia there's there's absolutely zero information from the authorities on UFOs. Whereas if you come to the States in recent years, there have been trickles from, from the U S and uh, so there's an interesting reversal of roles just when it comes, when it comes down to that. And that might just have to do with, um, well, whatever's going on in the States to, for those developments to be happening. But uh, that's probably that's a whole other show, I think. No, but no, very I mean, interesting. I, I, very I, interesting I, to watch. Not, yeah, yeah. I know nothing about you know ufology in Russia, so I'm, I'm sure it's mm -hmm. I'm sure it's fascinating. Yeah. Well, apparently there was some interesting stuff in the '90s after um, the you know the fall of the Soviet Union. Uh, George Knapp just did an interview on Joe Rogan where he talked about it. How after the fall of the Soviet Union, he realized, oh well, things have kind of like fallen apart. The, that government, that system, is no longer really in place. I wonder if I can talk to some of the KGB guys that were high up there and see what I can find. So he knew somebody who knew somebody who gathered around a lot of these high-ranking people. And then George Knapp, the um, Las Vegas journalist, um, went over to, to meet with all of them and talk with them. And they were giving him documents and, oh, this is what we were researching in the 70s and the 80s. Huh. And uh, yeah, really interesting. Wow. Yeah, very, very cool. Uh, Gary, I know that uh, we've already gone over time. Do you have okay. time for another um, question yeah, or so? Maybe another, maybe another five minutes or so. Okay. Um, do, I, do I have a question? Um, I probably do. But I can't think of it right okay. now. Well, to, to start to, to end the show with then, um, I was thinking um, of going off on something you just said about, well, to get back to the mysticism just a little bit, I want to read a sentence from your book on, or a paragraph from your book on Solovyov. Um, in his last year, Solovyov came to see that his plan for a literal world theocracy was a dream and that the kingdom of heaven on earth would be established only through a kind of inner apocalypse a spiritual awakening in individual men and women, not by decree. The only theocracy worth establishing, he saw, was one that arose spontaneously in the hearts of men. 
Now that Solovyov just seems like a very interesting guy. First of all, um, you talk about how he was essentially, he was a mystic himself. He had visions and he, he spoke with the dead, like, like Rudolf Steiner. And, uh, as a, as a, as a younger man, I don't know about as an, as an older man, but, um, he had this this vision of this um, like Russian universalism, um, or was that uh, was that Solovyov or Berdyaev? Um, no, 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 that, that's no, yeah. that's Solovyov. Yeah, and this this unity, and I just thought that was that was a, a beautiful paragraph, and yeah. and a beautiful thought that that brings together what what I see as the the like the strain of light throughout this Russian history that going back to the Hesychast tradition and Russian monasticism from mm. from Mount Athos and Greek orthodoxy and this idea of this inner light and this inner transformation and you see that in, in guys like Gurdjieff too and with the focus on on an inner uh, like uh, a focus on basically changing the trans transforming the self as opposed to imposing by force a change on the society um that seems like that's that that's one of this one of those directions or one of those truths that that's mixed in the shotgun shell that that I think is one of those gems that that stands out, um, and it's a new way of knowing too. Um, you haven't talked about that yet today, um, mm, yeah. because because the the contrast between the, the the Russian and the and the Western approach, the Western approach is this certain way of knowing, analytical, quantitative, like you said, but there is this other way of knowing. Um, and I know that you've got another book on it that I haven't read, but maybe you could just speak about that. What is, what is, what is it that, is that, do you think that's the most important idea of this strand of Holy Russia and, and what, what, what is that way of knowing and why is it important? Um, yeah, so no, it, it is, it, it is, um, it's, it's, I hate this phrase, but it, it's the takeaway, um, at, at, at the end of the book. And, um, I say in the book that, um, Okay, you know, we, we know what the West had to offer Russia, uh, you know, so rationality, logic, you know, um, progressive ideas, you know, systemized thinking, in a word, modernity. Um, but what did Russia have to offer to the West? And I say in the book that, again, it's this idea that Russia seems to take things or pick up things from someplace else and they play around with it and they turn it into something, you know, of, of its own. And uh, what they had was something that the West had but didn't want. And I, just briefly, this was this, uh, you talk about this other way of know, knowing. Well, in um, sort of in the wake of the enlightenment in the uh, late 18th and early uh, 19th century, we had this movement in the West known as romanticism and there's very different forms of it and, and you know, so on, but uh, you know, Beethoven romantic you know, composer or, you know, and so on. And, um, but, um, Fundamentally, it was a response to the overly analyt analytic, reductive, mechanistic, um, sort of let's take it apart um, scientific sensibility of, of the West and the, and the Enlightenment, which obviously gave us many, many, many good things, but along the way it lost something else. It lost this other side, this intuitive, poetic, metaphoric, um, spiritual, way of engaging with the world and actually knowing aspects of the world that this analytical um, way of approaching the world can't, can't know just by definition. Um, and um, this was something that the Russians picked up um, through a German philosopher named Friedrich Schelling, who most people don't know about, but he's one of the, you know, the great um, philosophers of, of uh, the early 19th century. Uh, in, in, in Germany. And he had this notion of what he called absolute knowledge. And again, fundamentally, it's a kind of intuitive knowledge. 
Um, it's a way of knowing things from their inside rather than on the surface. And um, I can only say that we all experience something like this. And these are what we would call our poetic moments or aesthetic, aesthetic kind of moments, or even like, you know, if you have a deep sort of moment like that, it's kind of a mystical experience in some way. And it, it's, it's an experience, it's a way of knowing things in which the distinction between inside and outside is uh, made permeable for a time. And, um, you know, there's a continuity, a participation, rather than how we tend to see things as you know, this outer world that's radically other than me out there. And I have to kind of observe it, you know, in all different ways and, you know, take measurements of it. And so it's a qualitative engagement, participatory kind of encounter with, with the world rather than this quantitative, um, you know, uh, mechanical kind of uh, measuring sort of way. And this was, and that's the soul. And for some reason the Russians picked up on this and they, this, this was something that's real. And why don't you Westerners understand this? And why, and why don't you think, and the thing is you can't prove the existence of the soul in the same way that you can prove a, you know, mathematical formula or some kind of, you know, chemical kind of reaction or something. It's just not in the nature to do that. You can show it, you can imply it, you can, you know, somehow present it, but, um, you can't, you know, turn it into two plus two equals, you know, whatever. And like, you know, famously, Dostoevsky, one of his books says, always remember two plus two equals five, you know, and that, that's because it's this radically other kind of thing. And, and, and it's fundamentally evidence for our freedom too. You know, we're not just uh, mechanical cogs in a wheel. And again, Dostoevsky is the one who, who says in uh, Notes from Underground that um, uh, even if you can prove to me that the universe is this wonderful kind of contraption that just runs perfectly mechanistically and everything works out for the best in the end, I will go insane on purpose in order to prove that I'm free. <laughs> and so again, this is this passionate thing. It's like, well, it's like, this is this thing The Russians are, they, they suffer. They have this, they have this capacity for suffering, but the suffering is a way of knowing that they, they're alive. And the, the utopian progressive rational systems that want to eliminate all suffering can do that, but at the expense of, of, of feeling um, alive. And one of the um, earliest kind of dystopian um, tracks, which predates, uh, well, e even Zamiatin's We, which is earlier than um, uh, Huxley or, or certainly uh, Orwell, is this uh, long stor short story called The Republic of the Southern Cross by um, Valery Biusov, who's one of these characters from the Silver Age. He was a satanic kind of dark, decadent, magical writer, but he writes about this um, perfect society uh, in, in uh, Antarctica um, where everyone is so sick of perfection that they, um, they develop what's called contradiction mania. And it's sort of like the old bizarro world in the Superman comics. So when you, when you mean yes, you say no, and black is white, and you know, the world is square. So everything is just, they started just contradicting everything. So whenever they, you know, I don't know, told some, wanted to tell someone they loved them, they would beat them up or slap them or something like this. And the whole, this perfect society just does what Dostoevsky says. It goes insane on purpose um, because suffering, uh, your freedom is preferable to the most perfect world, even if suffering is the only way that you can experience the freedom. The freedom is what's more important. And this is something that the Western pragmatic utilitarian John Mill um, way of seeing the world just can't make sense of. And that's why in many ways, Putin is right in saying that the West has kind of run out of steam because it doesn't have anything to offer 
people anymore. You know, you, you, have, you can pursue happiness, but there's no idea of telling you what happiness is anymore. And it certainly isn't just acquiring more and more material things because you know, we've been doing that for a long time and it doesn't seem to make people really happy. I'm not saying Putin's world is better, but at least he, he actually points to something that, that's true. It's a, it's mm -hmm. a true critique of, critique of the West. Yeah, and at the very least, he's opening people to um, get a, a, a wider perspective on Russia's history and Russia's philosophers and these Silver Age guys. And that's what you do in the book. So, um, Gary, we'll close it there. And I just want to say again, the Thank book is, is The Return of Holy Russia, uh, Gary Lockman. Um, Gary, where, what website can people go to to find out more about your work? Um, uh, www. Is it four Ws? I don't know. Uh, GaryLockman.co.uk. Co.uk. Yeah, and I'm on Twitter and um, Facebook as well. So, okay. I'm, I'm 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 not hard to find. Great. Thank well, you very much. Thank you very thank much. Thank you, I Gary. Thank you for thank talking you. to My us. My pleasure. All right. Okay. Take care. Take care.